Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word at this time to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 13, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Revelation chapter 13. Let's listen now to the voice of God's holy word beginning in verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and this deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for forty-two months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. Those names have, that have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed." He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the number of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Amen. Let's also read from chapter 17 of the revelation given to John. Revelation chapter 17, 
Revelation 17, let's again hear God's Word beginning in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen, and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, let's turn back to chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. 
as we see here, the introduction of the beast, the first beast, the beast from the sea. John says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now we've been considering for a number of months now the optimistic outlook of the Bible on New Covenant history. That as Christians, though we see ups and downs and seasons of wickedness throughout the New Covenant period, that we ought to understand that Christ is in fact discipling the nations, that He will remain with His church. Surely I will be with you always to the end of the age, to the end of the world, facilitating, empowering, and triumphing in and through His Gospel in this world. And we've been seeing that eventually it gets to the point where all nations have heard the Gospel, all nations have been discipled by the Gospel, and all nations join together in public profession of the true religion. This is the biblical teaching. Of course, then after that comes a falling away, and then Christ returns to judge the world at the end. We've seen something of the outline of, of that basic uh, framework several times before, but we've been going through the book of Revelation in greater detail, having gone through the, basically all the other main parts of the Scriptures on this topic. But we've been focusing on Revelation because it's a book that is almost entirely devoted to God's plan through the kingdom of Christ in this present age. It's a book that's devoted in other words, to predictive prophecy about the history of the church looking ahead. We call it history looking back, but really it's the events of New Testament church history from John's day, probably in the 90s AD, down through the ages until Christ's return. So far it's been roughly 2,000 years. But this book gives us, just like Daniel gives us a summary of the period between Daniel's day and the first coming of Christ, this book gives us, to a large extent, a basic summary of everything from John's day until our Lord's return. And within this book, there are many things that we could look at. We've considered quite a bit already, but this evening we're going to be focusing on some of the major characters in this book, and specifically focusing our attention upon some of the antagonistic characters in the book. Obviously, you could say that Christ and His church are the main characters. Uh, God in His providence is, is a main feature of this book. Uh, but remember, the book begins by telling us that these are things which must shortly take place. This is a book of history. And in history, you have not only the protagonist of Christ and the church, but you have the antagonist. Even as we see throughout biblical history in the previous 65 books of the Bible, for every action, there's a reaction. God is at work. Satan is himself at work, advancing his own kingdom and his own interests. And so we're going to look at some of the efforts of Satan's kingdom, some of the key diabolical figures, including Satan himself, and the means and mechanisms and uh, offices and institutions that he uses to advance his cause, even in our own day, and beyond until the coming of Christ. Well, we've already seen something of 
Satan's activity in chapter 12 last time when we considered Satan as the great red dragon. And we said it's not merely Satan, just like if you go to Isaiah chapter 14, where it says that Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High, and then he was cast out into the abyss. Uh, We say, yes, that's Satan. Lucifer is Satan. But if you look at the context, it's Satan as he's manifesting himself in the king and kingdom of Babylon. If you look at the context, it's not just Satan in and of himself, but it's Satan by way of this global empire. And we know from Daniel's prophecy that by the time you get to John's day, the chief global empire advancing Satan's humanistic agenda is not the head of gold, which is Babylon. It's not the shoulders of Medo-Persia. It's not the midsection of Alexander the Great and the Greeks, but it's the feet and the ten toes or ten kingdoms or ten provinces of the kingdom of Rome. And so Satan is working through Rome. He's working through the seven-hilled city of Rome, which had seven forms of government throughout the history of Rome. And so you have this dragon who has seven heads, sitting on seven hills, if you will, and ten horns of power, ten provinces, ten kingdoms, as we're told elsewhere. I mean, the Bible is is pretty explicit about this. This is not the mystery. There are a lot of mysteries in the book. Uh, The seven heads and the ten horns are obviously Rome. There's no question. This is the harlot that rules over all the kingdoms of the earth, according to John. Who was that? That was Rome. And Satan, as the red dragon, is working through this diabolical pagan persecutor, even the Roman Empire. And so, the, it's describing actually Satan's efforts through Rome before the fall of Rome and before the Christianization of Rome. Because you see that Satan as the great red dragon has seven heads and they're crowned. Each of the seven heads is crowned. Not the ten horns. The ten horns are not crowned, but the seven heads are crowned indicating that the seven-hilled city of Rome held sway and it had not yet been decentralized to the more regional provinces of those ten kingdoms within the Roman Empire. And so you have Satan working through pagan Rome, chasing down the woman who gives birth to Christ and also the rest of her offspring. Christ ascends to heaven, but the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God are being chased into the wilderness with this Mother Church, the woman herself. And yet Satan is prevented from destroying this woman and her faithful seed who flee into the wilderness for refuge from persecution. And so that's where we find ourselves. Satan has failed. He attempted to attack the church, to destroy the rest of her offspring. You look at uh, verse 17 of chapter 12. You can see that at the tail end of the chapter. The dragon failed. Satan, through this robust persecution, failed to destroy the church. And so now he moves to plan B. Chapter 13, verse 1. Satan is going to come at it from a different angle. He's going to try to destroy the church with a bit more subtlety. Not as the great red dragon, but he's going to raise up a beast. Really two beasts. The beast and the false prophet. And just like Joseph's dreams, the two are one. Just like Jesus' parables of the expansion of His kingdom. We saw in Matthew chapter 13, 
where he tells two parables, one after the other, uh, one about the, uh, uh, the seed, the tiny seed that turns into a mighty tree, and the other one is about the little bit of a pinch of leaven that leavens the whole lump, and those two parables have the same meaning, right? The two are one. Again, just like Joseph's dreams, or just like the later parables in Matthew 13 where the, the man buys the field in which the treasure is hid. And then Jesus tells, tells us about the man who sells everything and buys the pearl of great price. The two are one. This is a common way of communicating in the Bible. And more could be said. But these two beasts go hand in hand. And one is from the sea. And one is from the earth. But lest we spend too much time trying to put that under the microscope. Remember when we were in Daniel 7, it talks about the beast that's mentioned there at one point coming out of the sea, and later in the chapter it says he came out of the earth. So in terms of biblical prophecy, very often the sea refers to the Gentile nations and the earth refers to the Gentile nations. So if you go back to Daniel 7, we're not going to chase this down, but if you go back, you'll see that the same beast came out of the sea and the earth. Okay, so those two things are not meant to be put under the microscope. They're basically uh, placeholders for the same concept of the nations of the world. But in any event, there are two of these beasts that are pointing us to two aspects of Satan's more subtle agenda having failed through the pagan Roman Empire. Now let's look at this first beast, often simply called the beast of Revelation. Uh, the beast from the sea. Well, this beast, I'm going to make the case, and I think it's demonstrated uh, clearly in the Scripture here, is the revival of the pagan Roman emperor who had so thwarted the, the mission of the church, who had persecuted the church, who had threatened that if the church doesn't worship him and say Caesar is Lord, then they'll be persecuted. Well, that failed. The church spread. The church overtook the empire. Constantine came to something of a profession of Christianity. Toleration was established. Eventually, Christianity is the, essentially the law of the land. Not saying that that wasn't corrupted in many ways, but generally speaking, Satan failed. Christianity flourished. And the church moved on in its advance. And so Satan had to go back to the drawing board. And so uh, eventually, uh, with that that uh, the emperor having been wounded through the gospel, wounded through the conversion of Constantine, who actually moved the empire, the, the capital city, out of Rome, moved it to Constantinople in the east. So you have really a deadly wound on the Caesars, a deadly wound on the Roman emperor and his empire as it was established on the seven-hilled city of Rome. And the gospel... Even the sword, we're told he was wounded by the sword. The sword coming out of the Lord Jesus Christ's mouth wounded the emperor and his empire through the gospel. But now Satan is back at it again to revive that head, to revive that Roman emperorship, that power, that civil power of Caesar that would sit on the seven-hilled city of Rome. And of course, we know that he revived that by way of the papacy. This is just basic world history, church history. When uh, the emperor and the empire fell, 
there was an intervening period of a vacuum that had to be filled and the Bishop of Rome very quickly filled that vacuum and eventually came to rule with an iron fist as the Roman emperor revived. And that's the subtle plan of Satan. Notice in the text, he has seven heads, this beast, seven heads. By the way, the fact that he's a beast, let's remember in Daniel's prophecy, that in Daniel 7, there's a contrast between Satan's kingdoms and Satan's agenda and Satan's figureheads, which are beasts, versus the one like a son of man who ascends into the clouds and is enthroned at God's right hand, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam. And as Pilate said more than he knew, behold the man, the man Christ Jesus. Well, Satan's kingdom is a kingdom of beasts, a kingdom of brutes, and that's the picture here. But this beast has seven heads. Chapter 17, verse 9, we saw, identifies those seven heads as seven hills on which the woman is seated. It's very clear that it's unmistakable that this is the seven-hilled city of Rome. If it doesn't mean that, you you could almost throw out all your hermeneutical textbooks because Rome is the seven-hilled city. In addition, we're told in chapter 17, verse 10, again, not going to race back to it, but we did read it, Chapter 17, verse 10, that these seven heads are seven kings. Seven kings. Now, we, we, we considered not long ago the partial preterist view that tries to see these things as fulfilled in the past, and they try to say, well, if you count Julius Caesar as the first Caesar, and you count down the line, the sixth Caesar would be Nero, And of course, they would say, look, this is the Antichrist, this is the beast of Revelation, he's number six. And then remember, John says that the seventh will reign for a short time. And they say Galba reigned for a short time, a couple years. And and then they say, there you go. But remember, they forget what comes after that, that the beast is actually not number six or number seven, but number eight. And uh, if you follow the, these seven kings, these eight kings, if you identify them with the first eight Caesars, starting with Julius, the problem is that you end up with Otto, um, Otto as the Antichrist, or Otho, sorry, O-T-H-O, Otho as the Antichrist, number eight, and he only reigned for about three months, okay? So it really falls flat. Oftentimes, partial preterists just don't finish the citation, as Ken Gentry has done before in his books. Just don't finish the citation at the end of the verse that, ma- that makes mention of the, the beast being the eighth and not the sixth. Well, he's the eighth as a revival of the sixth. And throughout Reformed biblical interpretive history, this prophecy has been identified in this way, that in the history of Rome, you can look at pagan historians, this is not disputed, there were seven forms of government. You first had kings, and then consuls. You can find this stuff on Wikipedia, friends. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Kings, consuls, dictators, the decemvirate, Uh, named for the fact that they had 10 tables that they would sit at and then eventually 12. Uh, The Decemvirate, uh, these were judges and legislators. Again, you can read about this online. It's fairly interesting, but not too interesting. 
Um, so the Decemberate, number four. Fifth, the military tribunals that came in after the Decemberate had problems. And then the emperors. You could say starting with Julius or Augustus. The emperors were number six. And the emperors were wounded spiritually because notice being wounded here, being a wounded head, a wounded king, a wounded form of government doesn't simply mean that you cease to exist and were replaced by another one. Otherwise, they'd all be wounded, right? So there has to be something specific that has wounded number six in a way that was not true of the previous forms of government. Well, what spiritual wound by the sword of Christ was meted out upon number six? It was the conversion of Constantine. We use that more loosely because sometimes his fruit is not quite what we would like to see. But he converted to profess Christianity at the very least. Christianity was then tolerated and became more mainstream. Yes, it was corrupted, as we'll see. That's part of Satan's effort, his counterattack. But uh, it, it really wounded the Caesars and moved the capital city away from Rome. An unprecedented wound to that form of government. And then very briefly, in between the Caesars and the Popes, you have the Exarchate of Ravenna. You can read about that as well online, but it's just a placeholder in between the Caesars and the Popes. That's number seven. And number eight would be the revival, the revival of number six. The eighth form of government in Rome, politically speaking, is indisputably the papacy. And it revives the power of the Caesar. And we know in Scripture that the number eight signifies uh, recreation, rebirth. Circumcision, pointing to regeneration, was on the eighth day. Pentecost had an observation of, uh, had certain observances on the eighth day, signifying the, the work of the Spirit, the recreating power, reviving power of the Spirit. Uh, there were eight people saved in the ark and brought forth into the new creation. And the first day of the week, the resurrection day, the, the Lord's day, it's the first day of the week, but it's actually the eighth day. If you look at the way the New Testament speaks of that first day of the week, it's sometimes called the eighth day. It's the first day of the next week, the day in which the new week begins, new creation, recreation, newness. Resurrection Day, eight signifies that sort of concept. And so the eighth form of government revives the sixth. The wound is healed through the rise of the papacy sitting on the seven-hilled city of Rome. Also, we see there are ten horns. Daniel 2 tells us that Rome is the feet. How many toes do feet have? Ten. Daniel 7 tells us that this Roman beast has... Uh, ten horns, and Revelation picks up on that. Uh, while the Caesars are in charge, while Rome is ruling, you'll notice that the dragon has seven heads that are crowned, and the ten horns are not crowned. But when you get into chapter 13, remarkably, in cha chapter 13, verse 1, the seven heads are no longer crowned, but the ten horns are crowned, indicating the decentralization with the fall of Rome and the regional uh, rule of these ten kingdoms. We could say, loosely speaking, of Europe, papal Christendom. 
So there's a decentralization. It's indicating it's after the fall of Rome, and these ten kingdoms now wear the crown. Uh, The horns are crowned, and we saw in chapter 17 that at one point, the woman is riding the beast, but at another point, they turn against the woman. So these European nations, the, the historic papal Christendom, these European nations at one point are behind the papacy, at another point they turn against the papacy, and that's a dynamic that we've seen throughout history. We don't have time to develop that. Uh, but clearly with the ten horns being crowned, we see an indication of the fall of Rome and of the rise of the Western Empire under the Pope. Also notice in chapter 13 that this first beast is empowered by the dragon. The dragon being Satan working through pagan Rome. Satan and Rome, hand in hand. And verse 2 of chapter 13, the beast you saw, uh, which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power his throne, and great authority. So notice that this beast is identified with these animals that Daniel mentioned when we studied Daniel 7, and it mentions, remember, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and the three animals that are referenced in relation to those first three kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, are attributed here to this beast. So he's the embodiment of that entire line of pagan, humanistic, satanic empires. He's the leopard, the bear, and the lion in correspondence with those three preceding empires. But if you remember in Daniel 7, it says, then comes a great beast, and it's not even identified with a specific animal, but it's just greater and more fierce than all the ones that came before. And that's exactly what we find here. He's the embodiment of all these previous humanistic empires, but the dragon Satan and Rome enables him to be even greater, uh, to, to have great power and a throne with great authority, a fierce and violent and oppressive kingdom. Uh, you see this in verse 4, so they worship the dragon. So it's a kingdom that revives the Roman rule, but in a way that gives worship to the devil. In a way that ultimately directs people's worship and adoration and devotion uh, in their thoughts, the mark of the forehead, and in their deeds, the mark on the right hand. This is symbolic of total devotion in thought and in action to the agenda of Satan himself. They worship the dragon even as they're worshiping the beast. And Satan uses this. We know that all false worship, all idolatry, is actually devoted to demons. The Apostle Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 10 that the table of idolatry is a table of demons. Okay, So Satan is using this revival of Roman power to direct devotion and obedience and worship unto himself, we could say it's Satan's magnum opus. Yes, he was involved in Babylon. Yes, Satan was involved in Medo-Persia. Yes, Satan, no doubt, inspired 
Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. And no doubt Satan was involved as the great red dragon of pagan Rome. But now we have something that's more subtle, more effective, with more staying power throughout history. And notice that this first beast is followed. He's followed. Verse 13. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We'll get there in a moment. But this first beast is established uh, in such a way as promotes Satan's agenda and the first beast is worshipped. Not just worship that ultimately terminates on Satan, but worship that is at face value directed toward the beast himself. Verses 3 and 4, you can see that the world marveled at this revival of Roman rule, the head that's healed. The world marveled and followed. There we go. The, the beast was followed. Followed. Verse 3 and verse 4. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. So notice this, this first beast is followed. Same word that's used when Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. So they follow willingly this first beast. They worship him. Even as we know the papacy declares himself to be infallible, declares himself to be the representative of Christ himself on earth, claims to be the father of the church, claims to be the vicar of Christ, which we know Christ didn't say that the Pope would be his representative when he ascended to heaven. It would be the Holy Spirit that he would leave with us. So he usurps the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He's worshipped. He's followed. And he is a bloodthirsty and blasphemous persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. And you can see this in in the subsequent verses. People are worshipping him. Who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? And so he goes out, speaks blasphemous things. He opens his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So he's speaking blasphemous, heretical things against God himself, the name and therefore the the, the worship of God, the ordinances of God, God's tabernacle, the church, he blasphemes it, those who dwell in heaven. In other words, the people of God. You could even say the saints of God blasphemous and tyrannical errors and persecution. Uh, Those who won't worship Him, uh, He kills with the sword. He makes war against the people of God. So, this is the first beast. And it represents the Roman emperor as the revival of the civil power of the papacy. But this is followed then by the second beast, who is later referred in this book, to, uh, referred to as the false prophet. The second beast, the beast from the earth, or in other words, the false prophet. And this second beast represents the religious and ecclesiastical side of the papacy, the more subtle efforts of the papacy. Not just the papacy killing people with the sword who will not worship and obey him, but the more subtle side of the papacy. This second beast is a false prophet. One who speaks in the name of God. Claims to have the authority of God, the infallibility of God, and yet who speaks like a dragon. 
Notice that he has horns like a lamb. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. So he's presenting himself as a meek and gentle lamb, even as one who represents the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He presents himself as Christ, but his doctrines are satanic, and he speaks like a dragon. So you see Satan, plan B is to revive Roman rule and behind it to have a false religion that presents itself as representing Christ himself and yet speaks the same pagan propaganda that pagan Rome had been attempting to to foist upon the world for generations. They failed. Christianity flourished. But now Satan is going to use the shell of outward Christianity, the shell of a converted Roman Empire, the shell of the visible church to uh, inhabit it. Just like demonic possession. He's going to come into the church and outwardly it looks like a lamb, but the teachings are that of the dragon and the devil himself. This is historically, we know exactly what happened. You don't have to be a PhD in world history or church history to know this is exactly what Satan did. After his uh, efforts as the dragon failed, he raised up a revival of Roman civil power and he raised up the false prophet of the papacy. And we call this in Scripture, in the New Testament, we call this antichrist. In Greek, anti does not mean this sort of simplistic American Christian conception of one who is in all-out rebellion and who is against Christ. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean only that. In Greek, the prefix anti, time and time again, again, if we had time, I've preached on this separate topic at times, but, but anti means to take the place of, to, to usurp or to rule in the place of. And throughout the New Testament and the Greek Septuagint, this prefix uh, or this uh, preposition is used in reference to one king ruling in the place of another time and time again. And so this is a false Christ who seeks to take the place of Christ. Jesus warned, did he not, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, that there would come false Christ's who would come in His name. Now, He doesn't say people who claim to be Jesus of Nazareth uh, reincarnated. He says false Christs. They're going to say, I am the Christ. What does Christ mean? The prophet, priest, and king of the church. And what are they going to do? They're going to claim to have that authority as prophet, priest, and king of the church. And He says they're going to claim it in My name. And He warns His disciples. He says, call no man on earth your father but your Father who is in heaven. What does the Pope claim? He claims to be the earthly Father of the church. The name Pope means Father, Papa. Right? Jesus wasn't kidding when He warned His disciples, beware of someone who claims to be the earthly Father of the church. He says you have one teacher, one infallible teacher, that is the Christ. And He warns them by way of implication of the Pope who sits in the temple of God, the church, proclaims Himself as God with all the infallibility of Christ Himself. 
The Pope claims to be the prophet of the church with infallible teaching. The priest of the church interceding between God and man for salvation. He claims to be the king of the church with final and full authority over the people of God. He claims to be Christ. Prophet, priest, and king in the name of Christ. Antichrist. A false prophet who in principle denies the doctrine of Christ come in the flesh for the salvation of sinners. He, he, he takes the place of the Father. He takes the place of our infallible Teacher. He, in t- he takes the place of the Vicar of Christ, even the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sent into the world. Antichrist. One who appears as a lamb, but who speaks like the great red dragon. And he's also a civil tyrant in a sense. He utilizes the, the power that we mentioned under the first beast to his own advantage. So you look at verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. So you have the, the papacy's political power side by side with the papacy's religious power. And what does the Pope claim to have? Two swords, right? Two swords. Uh, the spiritual sword and the temporal sword. Uh, So he has the power of the first beast, the temporal sword, and the power of the second beast, this spiritual, religious authority. But he uses, he he manipulates that civil, tyrannical control of the first beast to his agenda to put down any insurrection against his heretical teachings, which is, of course, a fact of history. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, And this is the first beast. He makes an image of the first beast. What does the papacy do to to create an outward, tangible symbol or image or puppet regime of Roman power? December 25th, 800 AD, the Pope crowns Charlemagne the king of, of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. That is an image of Roman civil power that the Pope puts in place He's the father of that empire and of that emperor. It is his puppet regime for most of uh, the foreseeable future at that point. He creates it. He births it. He gives breath and life to that image. The Holy Roman Emperor Empire. The Holy Roman Emperor. It's sort of an image of this historic civil power of Rome that is brought to you by the Pope and sustained and defended and upheld by the Pope for some time after that. He's also a persuasive deceiver. He's not just uh, coercing people to follow him, but he's deceiving them, persuading them. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs. Now, whether these are real signs or deceptive signs, this can be debated. But the point is, if you're familiar with Roman Catholic apologetics, at the heart of Roman Catholic apologetics, especially in nations that are not so, in some sense, enlightened as our own, more superstitious nations, uh, the idea of signs and wonders and all these superstitious methods of verifying the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. This is part and parcel. Uh, The relics, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. These are the things that have deceived the world for centuries. And certainly during the medieval period, uh, roughly 
1260 years if you take the edict of toleration under uh, Constantine 310 till the establishment of the Reformation 1570 you've got most of the reformed nations established by then 1260 years this is roughly the period of time in which the papacy runs wild with its uh, with its aggressive effort to tyrannize men politically and spiritually but but it's a this uh it's a persuasive deception that's taking place here. In addition, um, you can see in uh, verse 11, again, the, the lamb meant to deceive so that people buy into the teachings and the words of the dragon. It's persuasive deception. This is also a false prophet who is identified, actually both of the beasts in one sense, are identified as being Latin. They're identified as those who are Latin. Verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Notice it's not 666, okay, for people who thought it was Ronald Wilson Reagan because, you know, Ronald has six letters and, you know, no, that's not what that's referring to, okay? 666 which throughout history, and I'm going to read something from an early church father that I think you may find helpful and instructive here on this, uh, this number, but according to John, this is something that when this is fulfilled and when the details of this prophetic description come, come to be fulfilled, that in the context of seeing all these obvious correlations between what John says will happen and what has actually happened in history, that upon seeing the fulfillment of these things, he says it will be clear, or you'll have enough information to go on to sort of put the capstone on it and, and notice the correspondence with 666. He's not saying start with the number. He's saying interpret the whole passage when it comes to pass. Then you can use this number as a way to sort of confirm it. And that's why he puts it at the end of the chapter or at the end of the section. They didn't have chapters back then. Uh, but uh, if you look at the, the numerical uh, value of various names and various cities and various words in the ancient world in Greek or in Latin, um, you can see that each word, each name has a numerical value. And in this case, the numerical value of the term Latinas or Latin, a Latin man, Latinos, L-A-T-E-I-N-O-S, if you do it in English, this fits the number, 666, that this would be a Latin ruler, a Roman ruler. Now that is not something where we're just playing around with numbers. We already know that there are seven heads and it's a seven-hilled city. So we already know it's Rome, so here's something that is not all that uh, ambitious really is just confirming what we already know from the text 666 aligns with Latinos that this one who rules politically and religiously from Rome will be a Latin it's actually not that big of a mystery in a sense uh, that's why he says wisdom will bring this to light now listen to Irenaeus of Lyons Irenaeus of Lyons was a disciple of a disciple of John the Apostle Irenaeus of Lyons 
was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle. And he's dealing in his day with people who claim it's not really 666, it's 616. And they're messing around with bad manuscripts that say 616, and he compares them, many of them, he says some of them are just ignorant, and we can look the other way, but, but he really compares them uh, to false prophets. He says this, quote, These men, advocates of the 616 Nero theory, therefore ought to learn and go back to the true number of the name that they be not reckoned among false prophets, but knowing the sure number declared by Scripture, that is 660 and 6, let them await in the first place the division of the kingdom into ten. This is a disciple of a disciple of John the Apostle, and he's saying, guys, before you start messing around with the number, first of all, it's 666, it's not 616, okay? It's not an area code, whatever. It's 666, and you need to recognize you should wait to see the prophecy fulfilled. Remember, Rome has to fall and be split up into the ten kingdoms. You have to wait for the division of the kingdom into ten. If Rome is still ruling, the empire hasn't fallen, the wound hasn't been struck, then you're wasting your time with this number. This is a a disciple of a disciple of John the Apostle. He says, then in the next place, when these kings are reigning, in other words, when the, the crown goes to the ten kings of the Roman Empire, let them learn to acknowledge that he who shall come, uh, let them learn to acknowledge that he who shall come uh, will claim the kingdom for himself. So when the ten kings take power, who is it that rises right in that frame of time and tries to take unilateral control? over the old Roman Empire. Well, we know that's the Pope. He's telling us in advance, when it's decentralized, look for the guy who rises up and takes control. This is a disciple of a disciple of John the Apostle. But he goes on in his uh, treatise against heresies. He says, quote, it is therefore more certain and less hazardous to await the fulfillment of the prophecy than to be making surmises, that is, guesses, and casting about for any names that may present themselves inasmuch as many names can be found possessing the number mentioned and the same question will after all remain unsolved, end quote. So he's clearly foreseen 20th century evangelical Bible prophecy, right? He's saying, listen, if you just focus on the number without looking for the tangible fulfillment of these clear prophetic images, if you look just at the number, you're going to find you know, thousands of names that fit this number. So you need to focus on when does the Rome fall and get divvied up into ten kingdoms and then one guy rises to the top. Look for that. Otherwise, it's going to be totally arbitrary. And we know that sadly it has been. Uh, you know, some people think it's uh, Bill Gates' patent on the vaccine or something. You know, everybody's looking for what, they, what, what may be the case. But he's saying be careful. That's a problem. That's not the way to interpret the Bible. He goes on, Latinos has the number 666, and it is a very probable solution, this being the name of the last kingdom of the four seen by Daniel. For the Latins are they who at present bear rule. I will not, however, make any boast over this coincidence, end quote. So he's saying even though Latinos corresponds, We haven't seen any of these events happen, so it would be speculation to say that that's definitely 
the number of the name because we haven't seen this figure arise among the ten kingdoms of the fallen empire. Then he says this, quote, We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist. For if it were necessary that this name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. For that was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day towards the end of Domitian's reign. End quote. So this is where we date the book of Revelation about 95-96 A.D. And Irenaeus tells us that John the Apostle, according to his own disciples, didn't go around telling people who the Antichrist was. In fact, according to Irenaeus, it wasn't even uh, expected that people in that original couple generations would even know who it was because it wouldn't be known until the seven kings gave way to the ten kingdoms and one rose to the top claiming the kingdom for himself. So this flies in the face of partial preterism that tells us the original audience knew all about the Antichrist and John went around telling people it's Nero. Uh, A disciple of a disciple of John says quite the contrary. They weren't supposed to know and they didn't expect to know and John didn't encourage them to speculate other than waiting for the imagery of this prophecy to be fulfilled and therefore open a window to vindicate one theory or another. So, uh, there's good reason to think that now having seen the fulfillment of these things in history, that, that 666 is just simply confirming that this is a Latin Roman ruler who will arise, and indeed who has arisen. More could be said. I'm going to skip some things here and, and, and mention something about the harlot. The harlot of the book of Revelation, mentioned especially and described for us in chapter 17. And among those who try to interpret this book as mostly fulfilled in the first century, there is a bit of debate. You may be familiar with Greg Bonson. You may be familiar with uh, Kenneth Gentry, both who hold to a partial preterist view of the book of Revelation. But on this point, they diverge. They disagree. Uh, Ken Gentry says, it must be the unfaithful covenant bride, the harlot, using the imagery of the Old Testament prophets, that this harlot is a false church, an unfaithful, spiritually adulterous covenant people. And he says, therefore, it's the first century Jews who rejected Christ. Greg Bonson says, oh no, it's the seven-hilled city of Rome. And so according to Dr. Gentry, when he taught the eschatology class that I took in college, He said that he and Dr. Bonson would go back and forth. Bonson would say it's Rome, seven-hilled city of Rome, and Gentry would say it's Jerusalem, and Bonson would say it's Rome, and Gentry would say it's Jerusalem. It's the seven-hilled city. It's the false church. And eventually, the light bulbs went on. Gentlemen, you're both right. It is the seven-hilled city of Rome, which is an unfaithful covenant bride, the false church of Roman Catholicism. Seven-hilled city of Rome, apostate church of Rome. That's the idea of the harlot. Notice verse 3. Where do we find her? Where does John find her? In the wilderness. Right where we left her back in chapter 12, verse 6, when the dragon chased the woman, the church, and her offspring into the wilderness for a period of persecution. But now we find that she's 
riding out of the wilderness, not leaning upon her beloved as in the Song of Solomon as a faithful church, but rather riding on this scarlet beast. Uh, This is the Roman Catholic Church, having been persecuted, having spread throughout the empire of Rome, so much positive momentum, and now has been corrupted by idolatry and paganism, and is riding on the back of this wicked satanic empire. She's riding the beast. She's sponsored by the papal civil sword, and of the ten horns, and the seven heads. Also, She's filled with fornication, and in this context, spiritual fornication, that is, idolatry, unfaithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Just like Israel, rather than waiting for Moses to come back down from the mountain at at Mount Sinai, uh, and waiting for the presence of God to return, as it were, and and, and all of these things, instead, they turn to idols, images, uh, even the golden calf and were guilty of spiritual fornication and idolatry, rejecting God for idols. Well, that's part and parcel of the Roman Catholic Church, almost from its inception, certainly as time went on, following Constantine and so forth, paganism was syncretized and combined into the Christian faith very rapidly, and so she's filled with fornication and idolatry. She has a cup of wine of abomination, clearly uh, indicating Roman Catholic worship and the exaltation of the the idolatrous mass in which they believe that they're eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ, Uh, taking the cup, as it were, that idolatrous, abominable cup of wine. Also, she's a persecutor. Verse 6, she's drunk with the blood of saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So she's not just idolatrous, symbolized by Babylon, the kingdom filled with idols, but she is drunk with the blood of the saints. And just read Fox's Book of Martyrs to demonstrate that fact about the Roman Catholic Church. Also, she is Roman. Uh, Notice verse 9. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. She's sitting on the seven-hilled city of Rome. And it goes on to describe uh, the ten kingdoms and the seven kings and so on. We'll we'll hasten beyond that. We've already established that. But this is a Roman harlot. And she's a Catholic harlot. Uh, Verse 15, she's universal. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Catholic means universal. So she's Roman, seven-hilled city of Rome. But she claims an authority over the entire world all peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. She's Roman. She's Catholic. Verse 18, she's the woman that uh, that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That's Rome. In John's context, that is Rome. So she's Roman and she's Catholic or universal. At some point, she's opposed by the ten horns. Uh, The former papal Christendom of the European nations at some point attack her and seek to burn her with fire, make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh. Verses 16 and 17, God puts it in their hearts. Uh, We certainly see something of that in the Reformation and perhaps yet to come. But ultimately, she's defeated by the word of Christ. I'm not going to read this entire section, but you recall from last time 
we looked at chapter 19. When the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, the harlot is defeated, this evil kingdom of oppression and idolatry is, as it were, cast into hell and obliterated from the face of the earth. And it takes place when Christ rides forth, conquering by the sword that comes out of his mouth, and his people are riding with him on white horses. And verse 11, uh, he's on the white horse, and he's called faithful and true. The name that is upon his thigh is the Word of God. And, uh, or rather, his name is the Word of God. The, word on, the name on his thigh is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In other words, Uh, The beast, the false prophet, the harlot have claimed tyrannical authority over the nations. But now Jesus Christ through His gospel and through stirring up the ten kingdoms to attack His enemies raises up a standard against them and claims true kingship and true lordship over the nations of the world. And He defeats them by the breath of His mouth, the spirit of His mouth. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. And ultimately, at the appearance of His coming, of course, He'll judge them and all mankind. So this is the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot. And let me just conclude very briefly with with some encouragements here regarding this book of Revelation. Uh, This book is a book that has special blessing. And part of the reason that this book has a unique blessing is that it's not merely presenting to us general principles but specific prophecies about specific foes. As we've seen, specific historical events that have unfolded exactly how the prophetic imagery says they would unfold. Uh, the, The Roman Catholic Church, the rise of the papacy, the Western nations, and the ebb and flow of that phenomenon that we see even today. As uh, we could go to chapter 16 and you find the the, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon wooing the nations of the world to gather in a globalist way against Christ. You see all these things happening, but these are specific foes. Now, we haven't mentioned all the foes. Uh, there are foes in this book that we just haven't mentioned, and we just don't have time to mention, but it's not as though Roman Catholicism is the be-all, end-all. Satan has many, many agendas through many, many different mechanisms, and some of them are mentioned in this book that we just maybe perhaps will mention another time. But there are specific foes so that we know our enemy and we know who we're fighting and we know how we're fighting. We know the methods of victory, that it is by the Word of God, the witness of the Gospel, the testimony of Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. These are the things that bring victory over the enemies of the Gospel and over the enemies of God's people. And we have specific promises of victory. You'll notice in this book that the beast and the false prophet go down in flames. That mystery Babylon the Great, the harlot, and the whole conspiracy against Christ goes down in flames. And Christ rides on in victory, takes dominion over the nations, brings in a period of unprecedented truth and righteousness and peace, and yes, eventually there's, there's a falling away at the end and then He returns in judgment. But the fact is we have a specific prophecy of specific events, specific foes, specific means of victory, and specific promises of triumph. 
And that ought to give us great encouragement. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you have revealed to us what we need. And that even though we don't understand everything that's taught in the Bible, that at every stage of our Christian life, your Spirit teaches us and illuminates our minds gradually, line upon line, precept upon precept, that we may grow each day in our knowledge and in our application of the Word of God. May this book of Revelation, may its specific prophecies and uh, may its specific uh, means of victory and promises of the future, may these things be brought home to our hearts that we may not only believe these things, but that we may observe them and enjoy a special blessing from your hand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.